everyone, I am Catalina and this is the Changemakers Podcast, a show exploring the sustainable development goals and highlighting thinkers and initiatives that are working towards achieving the UN's 2030 agenda. Today, my guest is Annie Kelly, an award-winning human rights journalist for The Guardian and Observer. She is the editor of The Guardian's Modern Day Slavery in Focus series. She also works as a writer and consultant for UN agencies and international NGOs. In today's episode, we talk about modern slavery, labor exploitation, the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on people employed in the global supply chains, and decent work. So, hi Annie, and welcome to the Changemakers podcast. I am really, really honored to have this interview with you today and reflect together on the issues of modern slavery and forced labor, and the effects of the pandemic on the millions of workers working in the informal economy all over the world. To kickstart this conversation, can you share with the listeners of this podcast a little bit about your work as a journalist and reporter? What is modern slavery and forced labor and what is the situation of modern slavery today? Of course. Hello. I'm really, really happy to be here and having this conversation today. It's an extremely difficult and challenging topic and it's really, really good to be able to kind of sit and have a proper chat through what's happening all over the world and kind of what it means for us all and the way that we're living our life and how we're kind of moving forward in this changing, fast-paced world that we're living in now, you know, when nothing seems to be the way that it was even a few years ago. So, yeah, so my name's Annie Kelly. I'm a journalist and an editor at The Guardian newspaper. I've been writing and reporting on human rights and labour exploitation for around 15 years now, first as a reporter and a foreign correspondent, and then for the last seven years, I've been working as an editor, leading The Guardian's coverage on modern-day slavery and labour exploitation through a special reporting project that The Guardian's running. It was a crazy baptism of fire when I first started, because although I realised I'd been covering a lot of the issues that we would then go on to investigate over the last seven years, I hadn't really ever considered it to be, you know, I never really kind of applied the words human trafficking or child labour or, you know, sex trafficking to some of the situations that I've been reporting on across the world. So it was, you know, I, I went through several kind of big epiphanies in the first one or two years of doing this reporting on, on actually kind of putting a name and a legal term to crimes that were happening on a huge scale across the world that I'd been kind of witnessing without even really realising what it was that I was seeing. So this reporting project, when we first started out, we weren't really sure what we wanted to do with it, but it quickly became evident that modern slavery and human trafficking weren't topics that were being covered particularly well or in a very widespread way by the global media. So a lot of the stories we did over the first two years was just really trying to kind of show people that slavery wasn't a thing of the past, that it was a crime that was happening at scale across the world and that it touched all of our lives through the products that we were buying, through the food that we were eating, through the way that kind of modern society had been set up in terms of there being this invisible, vulnerable community of people that were going unseen but were really existing in plain sight all around us. I think the word slavery often isn't a very helpful term because it has huge historical connotations. The transatlantic slave trade was a crime of just unimaginable proportions. Um, slavery today doesn't look like it did 
you know, in the times of plantation slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. So I think the term itself can be quite confusing for people. But when you look at it as a legal term, modern slavery, forced labour, human trafficking is a situation that is affecting more than 40 million people across the world today. And it's a situation where people find themselves trapped in work where they're either forced or they're coerced or they're tricked into a situation that they then can't leave for a wide variety of reasons. And I think where the confusion lies is that, you know, when you think of the word, of the term slavery, you think of kind of physical shackles of people being chained up or locked in a room or physically restrained in a way. And although that does happen, a lot of the time, modern slavery is more about the psychological chains that people find themselves in, or it's about debt, or it's about coercion, being too scared to leave. So, you know, those kind of psychological barriers or the barriers of being in debt or being indebted to uh, someone, uh, you know, for a debt that you can never pay off, or the fear of returning to your family empty-handed, those are all the situations that force people in situations of work that they don't feel that they could leave where they're really facing extreme exploitation. And often it's a kind of cycle of exploitation that starts off with bad work, where you might just be in a situation where you're not being paid properly or you're having to accept working conditions that are really bad or really kind of unacceptable working conditions, but you are, you know, getting paid even a small amount of money. So, you know, people are so desperate, they're willing to accept that. And then you can kind of cross an invisible line into what would legally be known as forced labor or trafficking or modern slavery, where you kind of fall down this chain of exploitation where you find yourself in a situation where you're not being paid or you're unable to leave. So it's a very complicated subject to explain and it's a very complicated subject to report on as well. We started off by doing quite a few really big supply chain investigations. We did a big investigation in 2014 into seafood in Thailand where you had hundreds, thousands of people being kept in what really could be described as very kind of old school chattel slavery. So chained up or forced to live on boats miles out at sea where they were being forced to fish under the threat of death if they refused. And we looked at how those workers were feeding into a global supply chain of seafood that was stretching all across the world and was being sold in some of the biggest food retailers in the United States, in the Asia-Pacific region. And then we also did an investigation also in 2014, which was looking at forced labour on World Cup construction sites in Qatar, in the Gulf. And that was looking at, you know, the plight of migrant workers working in construction who were in situations of debt bondage and forced labour where they weren't getting paid, the kafala sponsorship system that's widely used across the Gulf to control the movement of migrant workers was meaning that they couldn't return home. They were often arriving in the Gulf, thousands of pounds worth of debt on their shoulders that they then couldn't pay off. So that was also a a huge story that we did to try and raise the spectre of forced labour and debt bondage in places like the Gulf and in sectors like construction. And since then, we've done 
multiple investigations looking at um, situations facing people in agriculture, in the electronics industry. We've done kind of transnational and domestic sex trafficking investigations, looked at the situation facing migrant domestic workers across the world uh, who are often suffering extreme violence and exploitation behind the closed doors of private residences. So it's been very hard work, but it's been a real eye-opener into the world of work and, and into the way that people are being exploited in the world of work at scale across the world today. It is absolutely horrific to learn about what's happening in the global supply chains and almost hopeless to really think about the fact that most of our food and most of the stuff that we probably consume in the West especially is being created somehow through exploitation or modern slavery. So it's really horrific that we live in such a world today. Um, I was wondering what were some of your learnings about how the current pandemic has affected these millions of workers, you know, working in the informal economy or being trafficked for in forced labor. I mean, it's a terrible crisis all over the world, but I can imagine that especially these people who are already vulnerable have been affected the most. Where some, what, what kind of were your findings around this, of how this pandemic affected these people? I think it's safe to say that obviously what we're facing now with COVID-19 is a global health epidemic, pandemic, the likes of which, you know, we haven't seen in over 100 years. But it's also true that what we are is standing on the brink of a human rights epidemic as well. You know, the pandemic is going to play out worst for the world's most vulnerable people. It's exposed and exacerbated the precarious situation for billions of people living across the world, whether that's access to health services or access to a safe place to live or the ability to maintain the right to privacy in countries where there's been increasing infringement of people's personal liberties through you know, the rollout of very draconian state surveillance operations. But I think one of the most stark knock-on effects of this pandemic will be in the world of work. So millions of people are going to lose their jobs in the next six months. And the people who are likely to suffer the most from that are the lowest paid and lowest skilled workers, the workers who are the kind of engine of our global supply chains, the workers that can be disposed of the quickest by employers that are looking to recoup profits or to stop you know, the worst economic fallout of the pandemic on their own businesses. The workers with the least protections are going to be the ones that are going to suffer the most. And we've already seen that happen in a couple of really huge, big global industries. Most notably, oh, I think the starkest example is the global garment sector. When the pandemic hit earlier this year in, in kind of February and March, you saw high streets and retailers having to close their doors across the world. And the immediate impact was that the fashion industry collectively cancelled $14 billion worth of clothing orders that they'd already put into factories in some of the world's poorest countries. Um, so 
the countries that were most affected were the countries in the global south, which had come very much to depend on the fashion industry and the global garment kind of export industries in terms of, you know, propping up their economies. And so you saw countries like Bangladesh, Cambodia, Vietnam, Myanmar being really badly and very quickly hit by a huge economic bomb of these brands refusing to pay for orders that they had already placed in the factory. So these weren't new orders. These were orders that they put in before the pandemic hit that they then were refusing to pay for. And this wasn't just one brand. This was the industry at large reacted in exactly the same way, which was to kind of immediately ditch any pretense of this being a, a two-way street and leverage the huge power imbalance, which is in, kind of inherent in the global garment supply chain to just refuse to pay. And they all triggered these force majeure clauses in their contracts, which meant that the suppliers had no recourse to forcing any of these retailers to pay up. And the power imbalance is as such that many small suppliers, so factories or small clothing businesses in the global south are unable or unwilling to kind of launch any kind of legal action against any of these retailers because it means that they know that they will never receive another order from those brands ever again. So it was quite shocking to see the speed at which the global fashion industry ditched its suppliers and by default millions of garment workers who they knew would face uh, job losses and would not get their salaries paid. What that has meant is that they think that up to 2 million workers in Bangladesh will have lost their jobs by the end of this year. We have done some interviewing in Bangladesh over the summer where we went into some of the garment communities and found families that were surviving on bags of borrowed rice because they had lost their jobs when brands had pulled their orders and were unable to feed themselves and their families because there is no safety net for garment workers on minimum wages in countries like Bangladesh. And people would argue, you know, this isn't modern slavery. These people were workers in, you know, poorly paid workers, but they were they were working in a big global industry. But I think the dynamic is very telling because I think you can you can see that even those workers that were in the formal economy um, have been hit the hardest. If you think about the workers that would be in all subcontracting chains underneath those factories, so the at-home workers that would be sewing sequins onto ballet skirts or the workers who would be, you know, making the thread that would then be sent to the factories to make the clothing, you know, the impact on those informal workers in the global garment industry has also been absolutely catastrophic. So I think that's a really good example of how the pandemic is playing out for workers with the least protections who have no social security net to fall back onto. There has been huge concerns over the situation facing workers in the informal economy, such as domestic workers. So women working for families who have been locked inside these houses for months at a time with no recourse to reporting any abuse they might be facing to the authorities. So a lot of the big domestic workers charities are talking about a huge upswing in violence and non-payment of wages against migrant women working as domestic workers in countries around the world. Um, and I think 
but you have also seen anti-trafficking and anti-slavery charities warning that the pandemic is going to do nothing but exacerbate the exploitation of workers who will become increasingly desperate for work and increasingly desperate for any chance of paid employment and so will enter into increasingly risky situations where they will be at the mercy of unscrupulous employers or people who are able to exploit their vulnerability. I was uh, absolutely shocked to read uh, the stories happening in Bangladesh, as you said, with uh, brands cancelling their orders. Yeah, it was absolutely shocking to yeah learn that they were more concerned with their losses for the quarter yeah, than I mean, to actually yeah see what's think, happening in their supply really, chains. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting. I was really shocked too, and you know I've been reporting on the garment industry for decades, and I was really shocked too because it was just the speed at which it happened. Mm-hmm. And it was the kind of collective nature of the entire industry, you know, acting in this way. And this is an industry that spent years, you know, investing and trying to kind of show that it's, you know, it's changed. And the, the days of the sweatshop, you know, is uh, the sweatshops are behind them and that these are brands that are investing millions and millions into their ethical kind of worker welfare programs and like, bang, you know, it just all fell apart, <laughs> you know, within, within weeks. And there was, you know, the way that brands were willing to just throw millions of workers, you know, to the dogs, knowing that they would, that the suppliers, the factories would be unable to pay their wages. The, the, the whole, what was really interesting to me when you're talking about the fashion industry was that I, I had no idea that the whole industry was run on this system of debt. I, had, I really had no idea that you know, brands don't have to pay for the clothing that they've ordered until they accept the shipment when it arrives in, you know, in their country, the final destination. So you had this crazy situation where you had, you know, US and European brands that had shipments of clothing that they'd ordered that had been finished and sent that were sitting in ports in America or in the UK or, you know, across Europe that they just were simply refusing to pay for and that if they didn't accept the shipment, they didn't have to pay their invoice. So, I mean, the suppliers, talking about the factories and the the kind of local clothing companies that work with these brands that make the clothes that these brands then go and sell, you know, they have to pay for everything up front. They have to pay for the cloth. They have to pay for all of the labour. They take on all of the risk. And I had no idea that it was set up in that way. But obviously, if you've then got a situation where brands are just refusing to pay, the whole house of cards falls to pieces because then the suppliers and the factories can't get bank loans from their banks to pay for the next uh, lot of material and the next lot of labour that they have to pay for. So the whole thing is done on these debt arrangements where they're going to the banks and getting loans off the back of this invoice that hasn't yet been paid, meaning that they can then go on and buy the cloth and pay for the labour that they need to make the next order. So as soon as that chain's broken, there really is no safety net for any of those businesses to be able to weather any kind of uh, economic storm like the pandemic has kind of brought down on them. So I think it's a very stark example of how our global supply chains are set up and how the power is all concentrated at the top um, and you know there really is no recourse to any 
you know, the brand, uh, the suppliers and the workers at the bottom really have no way of fighting back if things like this happen. It's been very interesting as well because the knock-on effect in countries like Bangladesh uh, and Myanmar and Cambodia has been that the human rights kind of situation for workers on the ground has deteriorated even further because you've got you know, factories that are now able to make mass redundancies using the excuse of COVID and the order cancellations. And we've been reporting on the fact that across, you know, across multiple countries, this has been used as a way to purge the unions from the factories. So anyone who's a member of a union is the one who's being made redundant. You've, you've got pregnant women being made redundant so they don't have to pay any maternity benefits really scary things happening in places like Cambodia and Bangladesh uh, and Myanmar where workers who complain about the conditions in their workplaces are being arrested and detained so gender-based violence reports of gender-based violence on the factory floor are rising because brands aren't doing their factory inspections because of COVID-19 health and safety concerns and you're getting a situation where workers are so desperate, therefore they are accepting whatever bad treatment is being meted out to them on the factory floor because, you know, they know that if they lose their job, they're unlikely to get fine work anywhere else. And as I said, this is just in the formal economy. You, you then wonder about what happens to the millions and millions of workers who are in the kind of subcontracting chains underneath the, that, that kind of tier of formal work. So yeah, it's been really, really shocking how quickly this has had a huge knock-on effect. Yeah, absolutely. And looking at the Sustainable Development Goals, one of the goals that has been formulated in the United Nations SDG framework is to ensure decent work and economic well-being for all. And for me, this is one of the SDGs that is quite tricky (laughs) uh, because uh, decent work is... Yeah, I guess you could really shape that <laughs> to make it convenient for, you know, whatever uh, regulation framework you want to set up. Uh, so, and I feel like decent work is many times associated with minimum wage, which I find is a little bit too too narrow. Uh, like there's so much more to decent work that we should consider. So I was just wondering um, what, in your opinion, is decent work and how can we sort of start making any steps towards achieving that for the millions of workers um, working in this exploitative um, supply chains? I mean, I think um, it's a really interesting question. I think decent work is, as you said, so much more than the payment of statutory minimum wage, which in many countries isn't, is very far from a living wage. So you know, even if you're being paid minimum wage, it doesn't mean that you can live in a decent, dignified way in many places. You know, minimum wage. I was um, reporting in Lesotho um, in Southern Africa last year and uh, again on garments and women working in you know, supply chains of big denim brands were being paid, uh, you know, their pay packets were lasting them about two weeks. And then they, because they just couldn't make, the wage that they were being paid cover their basic living costs. I think decent work is about acknowledging the humanity of the people that are working in all of 
you know, across the world, but in, in our supply chains, it's not just about making sure that they get minimum wage. It's about making sure that the places where they're working in are safe and sanitary and their human rights are considered and upheld and they are not forced to endure verbal abuse or physical abuse or sexual harassment and that their health is considered to be important and you're not working in a place where there's likely to be a fire and you're going to find that the fire exits are blocked and it's it's about recognizing people's humanity and people's right to be working in a dignified safe environment to me that's what decent work is and also being you know being paid a living wage being paid a wage where you can eat and send your kids to school and where you are considered to be a worker that is worth something to the global economy and that to me is what decent work means yeah absolutely and just to add to that i would say also that to have that safety net that in case of such a crisis like the one we're experiencing right now you don't have to kind of choose between survival and exploitative working conditions and saying yes to anything just because you need to feed your kids um i mean this is an absolutely horrific position that we put these workers in exactly and and i think you know power you know a lot of these a lot of times as these big brands that are making huge profits off basing their supply chains in some of the world's poorest countries where human rights standards are not perhaps not upheld and where you've got situations where um there is no social security network i think it's acknowledging that those workers are your workers as well and that you have a role to play in investing in their workplaces and making sure that they have access to all of those things that we just talked about and you know at the moment that's just not happening and this isn't just the garment industry this is food electronics commodities you know any kind of big commodity the metals mining everything you know you've got a, you've got this ridiculous situation where brands have are able to say well we kind of demand that our suppliers uh, adhere to these really strict human rights and labor standards which we're then going to push down the supply chain and demand that our suppliers adhere to without changing our production or business model at all which is demanding the lowest cost the fastest turnaround the biggest volume of goods in this increasingly competitive marketplace where if you can't you know make that work then we'll take our business elsewhere but you're then asking people within that production model to also adhere to these really kind of lofty human rights and labor standards and and it just means that the big multinational companies at the top of the chain are able to kind of throw their hands up in horror and say but we you know but we require all our suppliers to treat our workers you know according to these kind of labor and human rights standards and we're shocked to find that this wasn't happening well go figure you know <laughs> so yeah. i think uh i would also say you know we talk very much about this all being i mean obviously it is very depressing and it is it is very dark and it's very hard to kind of square you know an optimistic view of humanity sometimes when you're looking at what is happening at scale across the world but i would say that you know this isn't like we're trying to find a cure for malaria or beat cancer you know these, these supply chains are things that we have created like businesses have created supply chains you can fix them these are things that can be fixed 
And that's really important to understand. You know, it doesn't have to be like this. It doesn't, you know, this could work for everybody. You know, you could, you would have to make less money and people would have to pay more for their stuff. But this isn't an irreversible situation. Like supply chains could be fair. They could ensure decent work for everybody. But brands aren't, you know, they can't possibly be policing their own supply chains is nonsense in my mind because, you you know, they were created in the first place to, to, to kind of make sure that the people at the top were reaping the biggest profit. The idea that you're setting up, you know, your supply chains in the global south because you're committed to lifting millions of people out of poverty, well, it hasn't played out that way. So things need to change. So in a way, you know, there is a bit of weird optimism there because... If there was the will to do it, then you could, you know, we could make these things work for everybody. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to remember about our economic system in general that it didn't exist there, you know, from ancient times. Like we set it up <laughs> uh, so yeah. we can change it as well. Now that we have more knowledge about what's actually happening and the concept and the negative externalities happening on environmental and social levels. Um, so talking about... The thing is like, will it ever happen? You know, that's another question <laughs> because actually the incentives, you know, for, for that to happen, you know, the, yeah. what's depressing is that when you expose exploitation, it's been shown time and time and time again that it doesn't really affect consumer behaviour. You know, like we feel bad about reading about, you know, people being abused in a coffee plantation or kids, you know, being trafficked into, you know, into chocolate supply chains or, but it doesn't mean that we're not drinking coffee or buying chocolate. And in fact, that isn't really even the solution because all that happens is that people then lose their jobs, but it's not pushing change, you know? People still go on buying stuff and still want to buy cheap stuff. And so the brands and the governments, you know, reaping profits yeah. off this model don't really have any incentive to, to fix them. And this is actually one topic or like the final big topic that I wanted to pick your brain on is what can we do as consumers? Because we're just so far away in the supply chain from these workers is that... I mean, we learn about this, but we still cannot gain that level of empathy that would allow us to take more action. Um, or it just feels like the easier choice is always to, you know, buy that new T-shirt or whatever, rather than actually looking for stuff. And, and also there are not so many alternatives. Of course, there are a lot of new, smaller local shops uh, popping up, but because we have an economic system that is based so much on price and getting the cheaper thing, I think it's rather easy to fall again into that trap of buying the cheaper thing. Uh, before yeah. thinking too much about it. So I was just wondering, yeah, what in your view, like what kind of awareness <laughs> can I mean, I sensitize? Can <laughs> I wish there was a, we just have to do this. Like, you know, just don't buy fast fashion or whatever. But, you know, we're all addicted to buying cheap stuff, aren't we? we we're all kind of consumer junkies now. And that's what we've been conditioned to do is buy stuff. And, you know, it makes you feel better, doesn't it? If you're feeling bad and you buy something new, you get that dopamine hit and you don't have to think too much about it because everyone's doing it. I, you know, I wish that I had a really lovely pithy answer for you, but maybe I'm just a bit jaded after doing this for so long that um, 
<laughs> that I, you know, I struggle to say, oh, well, just, you know, sign this petition or, you know, kind of write to your, you know, your brand and say that you want the workers to be treated better. I think the first step is is working on that empathy. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard because if you haven't been inside the factory, you haven't, you know, met the workers, then, you know, I was like struck by this idea that, these workers' hands, of, like their fingerprints are actually on all of this stuff that we're using and eating, you know, and kind of buying. And I think it's worth, maybe the first thing is to try and work on that empathy and try and kind of make that human connection between you and them and the, the people that are picking and sewing and, you know, on factory lines making all this stuff that we're buying, that we surround ourselves with. I think you can make more sensible choices about how you spend your money and try and wean off the addiction of just buying thoughtlessly. You can definitely support ethical fashion brands, ethical, you know, local business, like people who are working to create businesses that do want to do things better. I think absolutely taking the time to think about who you're giving your money to is crucial and showing through your spending power, your consumer power, that that's a a model that you support and this is the kind of business that you want to be seeing more of. I think that's really, really important. There are a couple of really good things that have come out throughout this pandemic. I mean, I'm going back to the fashion industry just because it was such a kind of immediate bomb that went off in one of our biggest um, supply chains with the pandemic. But, you know, there are a couple of really inspirational social media campaigns that started up through kind of organisations like Remake. Uh, There was a big, really good kind of pay up campaign that was got real traction on social media this summer, which was very targeted you know it was like getting brands to pay for the orders that they had placed and it did gain traction and it was you know really effective at putting pressure on brands through social media to honor their commitments so you know there are things that we can do to kind of show that we don't like what's going on and that we don't want to accept this but I'm afraid I you know, there isn't really a magic bullet, but I think kind of working on your empathy and using your kind of consumer power to choose where you're spending and, you know, to be, you know, making sure that you are going out there and actually engaging is a really, really good first step. Absolutely. And a final question for, um, uh, I would like to try to end our discussion on a more optimistic note, if possible. Um, so what is the change that you would like to contribute to in your lifetime? What do you hope to achieve through your work um, yeah, with regards to uh, labor exploitation and modern slavery? I mean, I think it's just, oh, it sounds really cheesy, but it's kind of just being that change, isn't it? It's like using your time and whatever platform you have, um, your brain power, and to try and work towards making some positive impacts in the world. And that could be literally kind of on your street or in your community, or it could be spending your working life trying to do something that might change things for the better. When I became a journalist, I decided that I was going to try and use 
you know, I was wanted to be a journalist, but then I decided that I was going to, if I was going to be a journalist, I was going to try and do things that might have some kind of positive impact in the world. And I'm, you know, I'm really, really proud of what we've done at The Guardian over the last seven years. I know that we have made a real impact and, you know, we have used this platform to try and hold power to account and raise, you know, awareness of what's going on and also tell the stories of people whose voices never get heard. And I think we can all use our time in our one kind of special life to to be really going out there and trying to get out of our own heads and get into the world and try and leave it a slightly better place than from when we started. So, I mean, it sounds really cheesy, but I do honestly believe that the power of individual action and the power of spending your time trying to have a positive impact. Awesome. Thank you so much, Annie, for your time. <laughs> Thank cool. you for this. It's a pleasure. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a depressing, but a, a very important I know, interview. I'm so terrible being so depressing. I, didn't, you know, I don't want to be depressing, really. No, but I think, I think it's an important topic to talk about because, um, yeah, as we said at the beginning of the interview, most of the things that we consume from our food to our clothes, you know, have been made in a supply chain uh, that includes labor exploitation and you know we cannot just be indifferent no i mean i just you know i think maybe this is something i should say i just think that we all have a responsibility to face up to this like it's really hard and difficult and it's really upsetting and it's really depressing but there's a reason that we feel depressed and disturbed by this when we read it it's because it's wrong what's happening of course we feel that because what is happening is terrible so I think in a way like shying away from those difficult emotions that you feel when you're confronted with exploitation and trafficking and the worst ways that human beings treat other people is it's like our responsibility to face up and like feel those difficult emotions and say okay this is happening like this is happening to people at scale across the world and hiding from it or kind of denying that it's happening is not going to do any good at all. You know, I do think the really positive changes happen. Things aren't depressing. Like the world is, you know, when you read the news, it's just like this constant state of alarm and anxiety and panic. But actually, there are some really amazing things going on and some really positive change happening in the world as well. And I think it's like seeking out those stories as well. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of grassroots movements growing of, as yeah, you said, individual action, you know, coming together for to create some some really impactful change. So I'm staying optimistic. Yeah, I think you have to be optimistic. Otherwise, you just kind of sink into this morass of despair and then nothing good will come out of that. So I think you've got to kind of come out fighting. That's my view anyway. You've got to kind of come out, you know, and say, this is terrible. I want to change this. What can I do to change it? Um, I mean I actually feel really lucky because in my work like I've gone and met these like all of these amazing people across the world and you know yeah like terrible things are happening to them but a lot of the time like that's not what defines them as people you know they're like mothers and musicians and you know uh they're they're funny and and they kind of have like rich inner lives you know like they're not just victims and then I feel terrible because I'm kind of extracting like the worst things that are happening to them and kind of then you know for the purpose of trying to kind of raise awareness of what's happening you just take that tiny bit 
of their lives and elevate that and 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 actually you know that isn't what define a lot of these people they're just everyone mm-hmm. is out there trying to do their best trying to strive to make their future and the future for their kids and their families better and then often find themselves in situations that they never imagined themselves mm-hmm. being in but I feel bad because you know I've met you often when you're doing this journalism you're just presenting one side of the story yeah yeah so thank you so much for for this interview it has really been a pleasure to um, get to know more about your work um, and yeah listening to to these topics and hope that the listeners of this podcast will also um, take away this maybe new pieces of information and actually do something about it um, through their individual consumer power <laughs> yeah and I think you know what you're doing is amazing I think kind of profiling you know having the kind of people on that you do on your podcast and kind of really you know examining and exploring all of the issues that you do it's just so important it's really you know it's really good that you're doing this so thank you <laughs> thank you for listening this was the changemakers podcast with annie kelly an award-winning human rights journalist and reporter for the guardian on modern day slavery and labor exploitation If you like this episode, share it within your community and connect with me on Instagram at change.makers.stories and on LinkedIn. You can find all these relevant links in this episode's description. If you are curious about the sustainable development goals and initiatives that are working towards the UN's 2030 agenda, subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Anchor and don't miss the upcoming episodes.